politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Okay, thanks for joining us for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School this afternoon. As you know, we're here every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Heard on KPFK at 90.7 FM and streaming for the world at kpfk.org. want to remind you, if you missed the show, you can always pick it up at the KPFK Archives on Demand. It's podcast under the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School wherever you pick up your podcasts. And the most recent program is always streaming on theagelesswisdom.com on demand. So you're never far from the mystery school. We have a great guest for you today, a fellow I've interviewed a half a dozen times over the years, Guy Finley, the author of more than 30 books, a spiritual teacher who uh, I consider not only a friend, but a teacher of mine formerly of Southern California, for the last three decades living in Merlin, Oregon. (laughs) What a great place for a spiritual retreat, Merlin, Oregon. He'll be with us in just a few minutes, so stay tuned for that. First of all, I want to thank every one of you who contributed to the KPFK Winter Fund Drive. We did not do as well as we had hoped, but... We're forever optimistic and, more than that, grateful to you for your pledges, for your contributions. If you made a pledge instead of a direct donation, of course, we know you'll honor that pledge. And it's never too late to be a contributor or a sustainer to KPFK. The website is always available to you, and if you missed the fund drive, well, it's always a good time to go to kpfk.org slash donate and join the community. Be a member of the KPFK family. But again, I really appreciate those of you who've already made that donation during our fund drive, especially if you did it during this program. It's a vote of confidence that we appreciate as well as our sole means of running this radio station, paying the bills, so that we don't have to throw negative commercials at you. Most radio stations, a third of their time is devoted to telling you that you're inadequate, you're not good enough, you're not pretty enough or smart enough, you're really not happy, though you may think you are, and voila, you need this product or service. By supporting KPFK listener-sponsored free speech radio for Southern California. We can avoid all of that negative nonsense and the editorial scrutiny that comes with having commercial sponsors or corporate benefactors. So, thank you, thank you for supporting this radio station. Before we bring on our guests, I want to do a little commentary at the top of the program. I want to talk about covid I want to talk about masks and a little bit about vaccines. You know, now that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has been released, it seems that what's been so unavailable for all of these months 
is now available. Initially for health workers and essential workers and those over 65, and soon for others based on certain criteria. And I know that a lot of you may be on the fence about this vaccine. This is a new form of vaccine. It's called an mRNA. And although it's been around for almost a decade and used in other applications, it's in this situation still new and fairly untested. You've seen how quickly it's been rushed to market and understandably so. Over half a million Americans have already died in this first year from COVID-19. And yet there's been a strong anti-vax sentiment in this country long before we ever heard of COVID. And I understand those concerns. I've studied, I've talked to a number of people over the years who are very committed to opposing vaccination. Of course, there's a lot of people that are sort of 50-50, you know. They may be in favor of uh, polio vaccine and measles and such, but not interested in getting a flu shot every fall. And I understand that as well. So it's a whole spectrum, a whole range of feelings that people have. And many have come to me and said, Michael, you've got to tell people this is a dangerous vaccine. Well, I can't do that because I don't know that it is dangerous. Of course, I'm not a scientist. I don't know that it's not dangerous. And and I have to admit, in many ways, we'd be much better off if we had the time to do more study before it's released. But given the circumstances, with all the death and the suffering, uh, that's going to have to wait. I'll tell you personally that because of our ages, my wife and I qualify for the vaccine, and And we'll be getting our first shot this week and three weeks down the road, number two. But I'm not being careless about this or thoughtless. The way I feel about it personally is that every medication has to be considered in terms of the ratio of benefit to risk. Every medication has side effects. And those side effects vary from individual to individual as well as medication to medication. So you have to say, well, what are the benefits and what are the possible side effects? And can I rely on the FDA to guarantee that this product is safe and effective? No, you really can't. They can say it's safe and effective for most people, meaning the benefits outweigh the risks, but you're also free not to have the vaccine. Or wait and see as it rolls out whether there are significant side effects that would change your mind about that benefit-to-risk ratio. But having acknowledged that, there is no excuse for not wearing a mask. And the nonsense that I've seen, the whining and hand-wringing and complaining about having to wear a mask is to me beyond reason. On several occasions, I've been approached by people who say, Michael, what good could a cotton mask do? Do you know how tiny this virus is? It's one one one-thousandth the width of a human hair. Do you think a cotton mask is going to stop that? And to that I stop and explain to them, well, we're not stopping the virus so much as 
the tiny little vapors, the water droplets that carry the virus. And yes, a mask, a cotton mask, especially if you wear two, does a great job of stopping those vapors from being breathed out through your mask so you're protecting other people, but also being inhaled. It's not the virus directly that the mask is stopping. It's the medium, the water vapors that carry the virus that you're inhibiting with the mask. And there are no negative consequences to wearing masks. Are they uncomfortable? Well, yeah, I suppose, especially if you have to wear them all day. Are you going to suffocate from too much carbon dioxide? No, I don't think so. That's not likely. So my bottom line is this. Whether you decide to get the vaccine, having considered the benefit-to-risk ratio, having read the science, having kept your eye open and your ear to the ground to get feedback on how it's going, well, that's all up to you. But wearing the mask is like wearing a seatbelt. You didn't whine and complain when the government mandated seatbelts. I mean, how far are you going to go? Are you going to say, it's my right not to stop at stop signs? I have a constitutional right to ignore red lights? And who says I have to carry auto insurance? Maybe I have a constitutional right as a sovereign citizen to drive a car without liability insurance. That makes about as much sense as I'm not going to wear a mask. It's not mandated. Nobody's going to write you a ticket. You're not going to go to jail. It's a matter of morality. It's a matter of ethics. We encountered a fellow at the post office the other day. No mask. It's March. We're a year into this. This clown had no mask on. Walked right up to us. Didn't wait for us to finish dropping our letter in the mail. Just came right upon us with no mask. Are we to assume he's already had his shots? So what? Maybe he's already had COVID. Maybe he thinks he's not contagious. Maybe he's had COVID. Maybe he's had the shots as well. So I wish you all good health, the best of health, you and your family, your friends and others. And again, I hope you are intelligent and read the science and deciding whether you're going to go ahead and get the vaccine. But, but let's wear masks until we're told that it's obviously over. Even if you've already had COVID, even if you've already had the shots, wear a mask. It's the ethical and moral thing to do. Why frighten people? What's the source of that pride and that foolishness that you think you have some right to disregard the safety of other people? And with that, I'll ask you to stand by, and after a very short break, we'll be back with my guest, Guy Finley. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. The Car Show has aired on KPFK since 1973. And perhaps you have a car that's been sitting in your driveway since 1973. Or 1993. Or maybe you're still driving it, but it's time to say goodbye. Get rid of that thing and help KPFK at the same time. Your donation of your old car gets it out of your life and helps KPFK as a tax-deductible donation. And not just cars. Trucks, boats, and motorcycles are also welcome. It's easy. Just call 877-KPFK-AUTO and we'll handle all the details. Let your old car help KPFK. 
KPFK on your radio at 90.7 FM. Good afternoon. Welcome again to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My guest today, I'm proud and happy to say, is a friend of mine from a lot of years and fellow who uh, I've also learned quite a bit from. If you're a listener to this program and you used to listen to Intervision uh, when I did that program, you probably know Guy Finley, a prodigious author, written many, many books, and in addition to that, uh, audiobooks, and he's done webinars. He has a learning center up in, uh, is it Oregon or Washington? You're in yeah. Oregon. Yeah, in Merlin, Oregon. Merlin, Oregon. What a wonderful place to be, Merlin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did they name that after you? Uh, Hi, this no, is Richard Bonner. You're I, listening to I Global. picked about four spots on the map when I knew I had to bail out of California these many, many years ago. And Merlin was one of them. And it turned out to be uh, my home now for like over 30 years. Guy Finley. Uh, you're a L.A. guy, aren't you? Born and raised down in SoCal. Tell me how you got into this field. What shall we call it? I think for you it goes beyond simply personal development, but I hesitate to call it mysticism, although that's a term I'm comfortable with. How do you describe what you do and what was your entry point to it all? Boy, Michael, I'll tell you, first, if I, whatever answer I have to the question would be hopelessly incomplete, but you can summarize it by saying that due to the circumstances that I was born into, my father being really one of the progenitors of late night television talk show back in the 50s, that I was raised with the children of the celebrities of the time, so that the Arnezes and the Sinatras and the Minnellis and the Doris, you know, I mean, just across the board, I was born into that world. And at an early age, I was unable to resolve a, 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 an impossible contradiction that troubled me. I couldn't understand why it was that with so many people, you know, applauding and singing praises and pouring money into their hands. Why are these people so dysfunctional? And I knew it as a boy. I didn't understand what dysfunction was, but I knew there was something wrong with the fear and anger that I could feel radiating from these people who were supposedly much higher than that. So just say that. And uh, that produced questions in a child's heart. And then without going into great detail, uh, unable to reconcile the pain that I, I felt, I wanted to understand it. My journey has been a wish to understand why are there these immense contradictions between the way we appear and the way we are. And uh, by grace, without going into details, I had a, a number of experiences, starting at the age of 12, that you would call clearly mystical, uh, incidents beyond doubt, that determined the direction of my life in such an infallible way. It, it was, I look back now at 72 years old, 60 years later, 
and it's a it's mind blowing that there was something active and intelligent around me or within me, probably the same thing, that could provide such a, a distinct path that I couldn't even understand why it was that way. But then these many years later, I live with this immense gratitude that something was watching over me and determining for me the journey that I would take through this life. How many books have you written at this point? You know, I don't even know, Michael. I, I, I had a feeling you were going to say Yeah, no, I, I don't. I mean, if you count audio books, it's probably in excess of 50 or 60 books. And how, do, how would you describe the passion that burns in you to continue writing and doing these webinars now? And you're undeterred. I, you know, Michael, I, from the time that I was young, I loved life. I loved facts. I loved exploring. I loved receiving. Maybe that's the, maybe that's the right terminology because I've never really tried to put it in words. I loved being the recipient of insight. I, I, I spent all of my time including the early years where I, before I met who was my true teacher, Vernon Howard, I spent years studying with one of the eldest disciples of Yogananda who became a, a, a teacher for me. And I just always wanted to receive as much as I could that would help me realize what I felt was innately something living in me seeking expression. So that, that's been the journey, just a, a wish to continually receive, which, by the way, is endless in its outpouring. I, I take no credit at all. If anything, if anything, I wish I could let the cup pass from my lips sometimes because there's just this, you should see my house. I don't know what to do. I probably have 30 million words unpublished, Michael, sitting in notepads and on my computer I, I can't get it out. <laughs> I'm like a hose with a nozzle that's too small. <laughs> so that's the answer. I suspect this is not the product of logic. Oh, no. This is mostly intuitive. I would say it's, it's an, with no credit to myself, I would say it's an act of love, of a ceaseless wish on my part to take part in a world, a life, a relationship with consciousness that seems to be absolutely infinite in itself and continually bringing me into exploring this infinite capacity that we all have to be the recipients of that kind of realization. If we would but learn to trust it, mm. I think many people find that they have so many voices in their heads, especially the voices of anxiety and stress, right. the negative ego, that's a bit redundant, negative ego, but yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, the right. self-loathing part of us that is always questioning and feels so insecure and inadequate, and alienated and separated. And yet there is that still small voice that if we can quiet the mind or as we learn to quiet the mind, we can hear above the fray 
and it speaks so clearly. You've already said two or three times, it's not really me. It's not Guy Finley. It's coming through you. Yes, yes. But how can we encourage our listeners to still themselves, quiet the mind, and begin to trust that inner voice of love and compassion and wisdom? It's a it's a question that requires approach from several different directions at once. I think first and foremost, Michael, and you as well as I know this better than most, that there is something that lives in all of us that endlessly seeks to realize some kind of greatness that ideally can't be reached, expressed, realized through the normal means. You know, life has a curious habit. That's part of what I was alluding to when I said, when I grew up, of showing us, as I saw, God, I wish, you know, if I had enough time, I'd tell you these stories about some of these celebrities. You know, one of the most famous comedians in the whole world was a miserable woman because her time, when it came, left. And when it left, she couldn't recreate the consciousness or the character that had been so successful. And instead of recognizing that she was being asked to be reborn, she was asked, will you give up who and what you've been that you might discover something altogether new? That consciousness will not let go. It clings tenaciously to these identities and images And in that tenacious clinging to image and identity, essentially cuts off that consciousness from being the recipient of these new realizations that rejuvenate the soul, intended to bring us into a new relationship based on a new understanding of our own possibilities. So weariness, Michael, recognizing I'm stuck. I'm not going any further. I I, I want to go further. I feel the need to, but... And the last part of this thing I want to say is that there is something in us that we don't understand that fears the unknown. And until we understand that we are created to live in this unknown, we'll never actually get to the point of being inwardly fearless. And to me, the definition of inward fearlessness is realizing that there is not one thing this life can bring to you, show you, or take from you that is anything other than good for you. And when you know that life is good and is always giving you what you need in order to basically release yourself from a false identity, then you are the recipient more and more willingly of what shows you, hey, you know what? That that self, that guy, that time, that's over, man, done with. Now it's time to meet this moment without that anxiety, without that trepidation. Why? Because you know if you go into it and wait patiently, you will be shown something about that person called yourself that will help you release yourself from yourself. And that's when the mind really gets quiet as it gains this tremendous clarity that 
by that light, it sees that it's not going to save itself. <laughs> it's not going to rescue you. It's, thought is not going to rescue you from the prison of thought. Seeing that thought makes prison releases you from the prison because you will no longer participate in prison making. Yeah. I, I, I'm trying to remember when it was in my life, not that it matters that much, that it occurred to me and it came like lightning and thunder. Right. That I had been taught all my life to solve problems by thinking. That's why I went to school. Right. Was to fill myself with knowledge and think it through. And then one day it occurred to me, I'm sure it was more gradual than I realized, but it seemed like an epiphany when it finally dawned on me. Thoughts are the problem. Thoughts are the distortion. The, my thinking is the problem. It's, yeah. not, it's, a, it's not the external event or situation or relationship. It's what I'm making of it. And yes. my, as you say, fear of becoming vulnerable to the opportunity to learn. Yes. It's a great, as we spoke so briefly before we started this interview, this life is one grand journey in letting go. But in order to let go, you have to understand to some extent that it, it hurts to hold on. It hurts to cling, to remain identified with what amounts to, and I just spoke about this just last night in, uh, on my online uh, talk. We've actually been taught, Michael, that it's our responsibility to suffer, that somehow it is my responsibility to suffer over what I'm not, over what you aren't doing, over what the world isn't doing the way it's supposed to do, and that all of my suffering proves that I am a valid, intelligent human being, when the fact is, if we were able to be present enough, that suffering doesn't prove that I'm responsible and that I know what it means to care. It means that I'm being careless with my soul by identifying with these thoughts and feelings that produce pain while promising to bring an end to it. A variation on that theme is the upside down, backward, inside out idea that my anxiety, my fear, my tendency to worry, to embrace my insecurity is a way of being careful and that there is safety in fear. Yeah, yeah. Because if I allowed myself to feel safe and fearless, well, I'd be putting myself in great danger then. Yeah, yeah. It occurs to me that's insane. <laughs> yeah, but that's because you have some sanity. <laughs> you know, what? What's? it's so overwhelmingly beautiful. We know the hermetic teachings, as above, so below, as within, so without. It, it never really dawns on us as part of the way in which we come into increasingly being a fearless human being. Look, when I uh, look into a microscope or I look through a telescope uh, and I make these astounding discoveries about these fractals and these levels of intelligence all interweaving with each other, and I look at this magnificent creation that by and large is either too big for me to see or I can't see it because it's invisible, 
Michael, what am I looking at in that moment through that microscope or through that telescope? I am looking into my own consciousness. That's what I'm seeing, which means that it is possible if we have the right instrument, which in this instance turns out to be stillness and the love of discovery. If I use the right instrument, I realize that I am within myself the logos. I am made in the true image of what is divine, which is the amalgamation and beyond that of all the principles, all the powers, all the forces that have ever brought, been brought together in this matrix that we look out and see as a problem life. When, when if we could see it properly, life's not a problem. It's a possibility that we can endlessly enter into to discover the depth and breadth of our own limitless possibilities. And this isn't motivational. This is factual. That's where fearlessness lives in the fact that there's no me that needs to be afraid of anything other than if we want to use words, the part of me that wants to deny the possibility of my own awakening, of my own higher consciousness. Another problem that I think a lot of people have, at least it was a barrier for me, Guy, is a concern that if I look at my life in the way you're describing, then I'm going to become all full of myself, all arrogant and pompous and conceited and then nobody's going to love me. So I'll play small. And only in time, with a lot of study and a lot of work, did I realize that the more I understood the truth about who I am, the more humble I became. My ego, yes. my ego finally sat back, and it rears up every once in a while, you know, if I feel endangered or threatened somehow. Right, right. I mean, the ego's job is to ride shotgun. It wants to drive the car, but we got to keep it over in the passenger seat, you know. <laughs> if you ever face real danger, it's a good thing to have, this reflexive, egoic nature, but we can't let it run the show. No, no. We, it, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a real consistent misunderstanding on our part that this nature that we are born into and i want to be quite clear about this isn't there's not no such thing as guy's consciousness or michael's consciousness there's no such thing as guy's nature or michael's nature there is an individualized expression given our environment culture and all the conditions that surrounded our birth that that give formation to that that general is that general consciousness but it's not mine and to to grasp that is the same as beginning to be able to pull back a little bit and realize that like how do i say this because i think it goes to the real question you asked me at the top of this show you know what was the path and for me the whole exploration of this consciousness is it boils down to wanting to understand pain that says it understands why it's there that tells me to protect myself from the conditions it blames for it but in the end there is a pain that we as human beings do not know what to do with 
and running out of answers for that pain, for the conflict, for the fear, for the greed, for the corruption, running out of answers for all the things that that brings into our life. Running from pain is pain running. When we get that, we have to slow down. But we don't want to slow down because to slow down brings about the humility of seeing that we of ourselves can't do anything about the content of our consciousness save for becoming the quiet witness of all that it is, all that it does, and all that it is made up of. Then there's humility. You, 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 you want the evidence of a human being who has not developed very far? Show me a man or a woman who still believes that of themselves, they're going to do something great in this world that they will be recognized for. That is the evidence of immaturity that God willing will be acted on in time. And that person will realize what you and I are talking about, which is that you and I are here with a distinct purpose, which is to be an intermediary between two worlds, this higher world, this divine world, and its expression in time in the physical world, to stand as the bridge between two levels of consciousness and allow the higher to act on the lower and in the light of that revelation, the lower will voluntarily become humble. It will give itself up. It will die to itself in favor of the greater consciousness that tells it and shows it the truth of itself. Talking to you, interviewing you, Guy, is like sailing. I feel the wind in my sails, and I, I feel a sense of soaring and freedom when I hear you speak. It's really beautiful. And we've got more. My guest is Guy Finley. Stay right where you are. You're listening to The Ageless Wisdom on KPFK. Hi, this is Gloria Steinem, and you're listening to 90.7 FM KPFK Los Angeles, 112,000 watts of progressive free speech radio. KPFK, you're listening to The Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My guest today, Guy Finley, a friend, a fellow traveler who I've interviewed a number of times. He has scores of books, and uh, now as a result of the COVID epidemic, we're uh, all of us doing our Zoom classes and our webinars. In fact, Guy, you have something coming up in March we want to talk about too, and it's a pretty interesting format the way you laid it out. Talk about the Seven Simple Practices webinar. On March the 31st, we're going to hold a, a webinar for the whole world, entitled Seven Simple Practices for Realizing Your Highest Spiritual Possibilities. When COVID came, I took the meetings that I was holding at my foundation in Southern Oregon online, and we realized that the best way to reach out and touch the most people possible would be once a month to take a, a designated topic and build around that topic a host of materials so that the individuals who would take part in the webinar, which by the way is free, would be able to come to that webinar already with material in hand, ideas and questions that they might want to ask about, in this instance, the new e-course that I just finished recording and the attending book, the e-book. 
So that what we do is that we offer this webinar for free. You don't have to join anything, no cost, nothing. But if you want to get the materials in advance of the webinar, the free ebook and e-course, which is about, I think, an hour and a half or two hours of recorded material outlining these seven practices, then the person is asked to make a $10 donation or more. We are a non, my foundation, Life of Learning, is a nonprofit organization. We literally survive by donation. And then that person gets the e-course in advance. They study it, they listen to it, so that when we have the webinar on Sunday morning, March 31st, we can engage with one another in a meaningful dialogue about whatever discoveries the individuals who've listened and read made in advance of that. And then we explore it all together because that's really not just the purpose for the ongoing talks online, but the webinar itself. Can we, will we work together to explore the possibilities that we have as a human being to realize literally these unplumbed depths depths of ourself through, in this instance, these seven practices. Practices are important uh, tools and techniques. The theory is important, the instruction, the information giving, but to give people actual tools, I think is really, really important. Here's something you can actually do and rehearse and practice. <laughs> Right. It, it's, they're practical, right? They're, very, they're, they're more than practical in one respect because they, they, these seven practices, basically, Michael, I, I, I'm 72 years old. As you know, I've been teaching for 40 years now. I wanted to try to put into a, a single organism, a single document, the things that I feel are the most important for an individual to work with, assuming that they want to wake up and realize these latent possibilities that we all have of being in relationship with something that is eternal, something that is divine. So that these seven practices are ways in which we can, and I know you'll support me with this, not just gain knowledge, Knowledge by itself is useless as far as I'm concerned. But if we can act on that knowledge, not just acknowledge the truth, but act on it, then through the action of taking these ideas into our everyday life and our relationships with friends, family, coworkers alike, then these practices begin to show us, act as the ground of revelation. So that through revelation, we realize the unexplored corners of our own consciousness by the light that these practices make possible when we take them into our lives. That's what these exercises, these practices are. A way for a man or a woman, and I want to clarify this, to succeed without the possibility of failure. You know, so many of us don't want to try things because something in advance tells us, well, you can't, or you've done that before, or you've worked and it, nothing happened. When you really practice from the right mindset, that mindset includes the understanding that it is impossible to fail in the discovery of yourself. Pure and simple. 
that whatever ground you step into, whatever action you take, based on your wish to understand something about yourself that you don't now, guarantees that you will come upon something that you did not know about yourself and that now you do. And each glimpse is like a ray of light into a darkened room. So that with each ray of light, something is revealed that we didn't know was in this consciousness of ours. And with every revelation and invitation to go further into that kind of illumination that these practices are intended to create. Indeed, we learn more from what most people call failure than from our successes. Yes. Strange things about where the way we're graded in school yeah. is you don't usually get credit for improvement, only for the outcome, when we could see that our success is guaranteed if we learn from what other people call failure and just keep moving up the ladder and evolving and refining ourselves, improving and redeeming. Even the word mistake is a loaded term. Exactly. Learning opportunity. Exactly. We are brought into this world. We are absorbed into a stream of unconscious thoughts and feelings that by and large would convince us that to discover any limitation in ourselves is the same as being imprisoned by our own reaction to that limitation. This practice, what I'm talking about, this work, is designed to help a person understand, you know, wake up, man. How are you going to grow without outgrowing something? So that the, the requirement for the development of the soul is the awakening to and the realization of what now encompasses some kind of captivity that it is consensually involved in. So that's what these practices are for. You know, we can't really have a discussion like this without talking about the polarities of love and fear. You've mentioned the F word a couple of times here, and I'm wondering if you would agree with uh, my... Uh, conclusion, I guess that's the word I'm looking for, that for most of us, the most frightening thing of all is facing who we are and attempt to discover who I really am. Yes. And maybe why am I here and what am I for? That for all the fears we project on our situations and relationships in the world around us, it seems to me the core fear is who am I or what am I? I think the core fear, Michael, along that line, is that I don't know what to do with what I find in myself. Like I'm all for finding out through some revelation that I have a generosity. I'm all for realizing I have a propensity towards music or whatever it may be. But there is in this consciousness, this reluctance, and that's a gentle word, for what is, what's all this negativity? Why am I, what's this hatred that I feel? What's this violence that comes up in me when somebody cuts me off on the freeway? Why am I so ambitious that I'll, I'll do anything? I'll, I'll sell my mother downstream if it means I'm going to get upstream a little bit. We don't know what to do with that which we see in ourselves because part of that egoic nature 
denies the existence of anything that, that isn't part of its imagined perfection. So that's a big stumbling block on this path. And by the way, one of the key features of why I have made these practices what they are, so that we can actually transcend this sense of fear that we have of seeing something in ourselves that we don't know what to do with. I'm sorry to go on. I get passionate. It isn't our job to deal with this darkness that we discover in ourselves. The light that reveals that darkness knows exactly what to do with what is unconscious. Unconsciousness can't heal itself. Only something that is already awake and aware can integrate what is unconscious into this greater, truer act of love that we are intended to be the instrument of. Yeah. I have a question formed in my mind, and I listen to you speak, and then this big wave comes over me, and now I have 30 questions. <laughs> well, we're friends for life, so we can go at it. What I was thinking was, when I get defensive, I've learned to ask myself, who are you defending, and why do you believe it needs a defense? Yes, yes. It's a perfect question, but it includes the fact, Michael, that you've reached a point in your own work where you can come to an inner stop in that split second because another part of you suspects this negative reaction isn't proving that I'm right. It's rather showing me that I don't understand what I need to in this moment, and I need to step back from myself. And that's really where everything true begins because that's the position of observer, that's the witness consciousness, the third eye, that which can see without identifying all that we are and not get caught up in any particular image and take itself to be that or not want to be that. Yeah, the pause that refreshes. In his book, um, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl talks about the space between stimulus and response. Right. The space between what's done to you and your reflexive reaction or the opportunity to open up that space and understand, to process, to digest, to realize, and then proactively initiate a much more refined action. Yes, a much more, and, and let's, if, you, if I may, instead of a more refined reaction, a more aligned reaction, something that serves the whole instead of the self seeking to confirm itself through whatever it's imagined is the right response. You've said something that really uh, triggers something in me, and I, I'm dying to share this with you because you said between the response and the, the action. Michael, um, in fact, it's one of the exercises in my upcoming webinar. You already may know this, but I'm going to throw it out. Do you know the original meaning of the word patience, Michael? I do not. I, I, Michael, with God as my witness, I, when I came upon this, whatever it was, a dozen years ago, I remember sitting down and feeling wave after wave of gratitude for a sudden insight that I had somehow missed. The word patience means to suffer myself. To suffer myself. That's why St. Paul said, in your patience possess you your soul. That The reason that we don't have that gap, the pause that refreshes, 
is because we haven't the patience in that moment to bear the pain that has come up as a result of being triggered of that image, that identity being triggered by that comment or that event. And that's where this word patience becomes such a, a beautiful bridge because in my patience, I get to see that this pain wants to pounce. This pain wants to justify itself. This pain wants to blame, but that none of those things have ever produced an ounce of change in myself, let alone in the world. But now I know a great secret. I am going to, in the moment where I am triggered, remember the need to suffer myself before I make any other human being suffer for what has been revealed in myself that I've taken to be myself. Yeah, this is when the teachers say, just sit with it. Yes, yes. You know how I learned this oddly? Is through physical pain control. Yeah. I took a self-hypnosis class right out of college and learned pain control at the dentist. And it so impressed the dentist, <laughs> maybe I should be impressed. <laughs> and uh, I left the dentist office the first time I did it, and it was a root canal. It was supposed to be a pretty painful procedure. And I must say, I felt some discomfort, but it didn't matter. It was almost like there was a a ceiling that was created in my experience that by allowing myself to feel it, sit with it, be present with the pain, even give it a color and a texture and a temperature and let it have its way with me, it diminished the painful sensation as opposed to tightening and tensing up and gripping the dentist chair and yeah. The more tension I brought into my body, the more that amplified the pain. Exactly, exactly. So I thought, well, if that works for physical pain, how about my emotional pain? Maybe if I sat with my heartache and my sadness, my depression, and, and my sense of having been betrayed or lied to or, or misunderstood or whatever, maybe if I just sat with that in the same way. And that was my entry point to what you're describing. Yeah, because what are we saying other than we have a, an instantaneous negative or painful reaction to something? In the split second that the reaction comes up, because we are not developed sufficiently enough yet, everything about our mind, our attention, and our thoughts goes like a laser and focuses on the very thing we don't want. And the more we don't want it, the more we get what we don't want, and the more exacerbated the whole painful situation becomes. So it's true physically, and it's true psychologically. That's the catch-22 in all of this. Yes, it is. A big catch. But you know what? You, you get a little drift of this, and you start to realize, what a contradiction. I talk all the time to people who say they were abused as children in their past, where they were parents were monsters and they they keep saying well how do i stop that kind of pain and i always say to them if you could stop long enough to see something is inviting you to revisit the very thing that you don't want to experience again 
And why would it do that? Exactly. And if you could just catch that much, you'd realize I am somehow or other being deceived into being complicit with the very condition I say I don't want. Then it's not a question of power. It's a question of stop making yourself powerless by identifying with where your attention takes you because it wants to go and be made a victim again so you can have so it can have that experience over and over and over again. Yeah. So the question to the hand wringing, why does this keep happening to me? <laughs> is so you can learn more about it. Exactly. And and eventually you do. This is a, a kind of a an important point on the path where we stop looking for people and our past and our pain and the blame. We stop giving our attention to what the mind in its sleep wants us to put our attention on because we realize that the minute something wants to drag me back into reliving anything that makes me miserable, I don't have to go there. I'm not, that's what I said. That consciousness tells you you're responsible for this pain. And if you just relive it enough times, you'll finally escape it. And of course, that's sheer nonsense. That's madness of a sort. This is wonderful. Uh, Guy, thank you so much for being with us. How can folks find out more about uh, the webinar you have coming up in a couple of weeks? Let me repeat for everyone, this free webinar, Seven Simple Practices for Realizing Your Highest Spiritual Possibilities, will be held on Sunday morning, 9 a.m. Pacific, and you can learn all about it and register for it. It's free by going to guyfinley.org forward slash practices. That's guyfinley, G-U-Y-F-I-N-L-E-Y dot org forward slash practices. Or you can just go to my website, guyfinley.org, and look under the events section and spend a year there just going through the free material if you want to. But I invite and encourage everyone, join me for this special webinar. If you can and are willing to make a small donation, you can get the whole course in advance including the download afterwards, go to guyfinley.org forward slash practices. And then let's spend some time together like Michael and I are doing. This is what's so good. How can I explore and discover the truth that sets me free if I am refusing to realize that I have, in fact, been set upon by a set of limitations I don't recognize and that I'm willing to meet and explore through these practices? The truth sets you free. Thank you, Guy. Um, I always learn from talking to you and thoroughly enjoy our uh, sessions. And uh, gosh, what's it been? 35 years, I think, since yeah. the first time we did the radio show? Yes, yes, yes. I came in there with Mr. Howard and sat there and watched you interview VH. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You sat there quietly that time. Oh, yeah, I did. Uh, well, the you know, he 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 uh, deserves attention and silence while he was alive, and now I'm happy to be part of the continuation of what he was the continuation of, and what we are continuing through our conversation together. You know, back in the '80s, I was asked to introduce Vernon Howard at a. Uh, a lecture, a public seminar in, in Los Angeles. And I remember saying at the time, 
stood up on stage and introduced him. And I said, you know, a lot of us talk about the fact that we are not our negative thoughts. Vernon's here to tell you, you're not your positive thoughts either. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> and then I walked off the stage as VH came up and I thought, you know, I know what I said is true, but I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> and then he proceeded to chase 30% of the audience out of the room with his next few comments, if you remember that too. <laughs> well, he was never afraid of what people thought of him. No, sir. No, sir. And if he offended you, so be it. Uh, if you were smart enough to stick around. Yes. There were pearls of wisdom there. The man was really, uh, has inspired us both. and thousands and thousands of other people as well. And you've picked up where he left off. Your work is uh, universal and yet unique in its own way. And I love hearing you find words to describe your words to describe these phenomena and uh, best of luck to you and uh, blessings on you and your household, your family, your beautiful wife and uh, stay strong, stay in touch. Okay. My love to you and Doreen as well, Michael, I wish you all the health in the world and an unceasing flow of insight. Oh, what a gift that'll be. Thank you. Actually, it is. Thanks for encouraging. Yes. The Ageless Wisdom Mystery School is heard every Tuesday at 1 p.m. on KPFK 90.7 FM. You can also hear it on demand through the KPFK archives. It's podcast at the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on all podcast platforms and at our website, theagelesswisdom.com. <laughs>